Now, we introduced uh, last week, talked about this man, John the Baptist. He was a prophet. He was a preacher, but he was not conceited. And he certainly, certainly didn't preach himself. He was like Paul the apostle. He preached Christ, and he preached repentance and faith. And uh, the New Testament church is not a, not a man-centered church. The New Testament church like this one is a Christ-centered church. Now, folks, there is no room in any church for the pastor to become a celebrity in God's work. Not never supposed to happen. The message of this church, of Grace Church, is not its pastors. It's not the properties, and it's not our programs. It is the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so we're so happy to be able to do that from week to week. Now, uh, we have a summer intern that's working in the young adult ministry. It's Stephen Bruce. Stephen is going to be helping us a little bit, and he's going to lead us in our reading this morning. So stand to your feet, why don't you? Good morning, Grace Church. Um, as you said, my name is Stephen Bruce, and I'm one of the summer interns here uh, working with the young adults in adult ministry. Um, and I'm super excited to be able to lead us in our reading this morning. Um, as you know, the past couple weeks we've been in the first chapter of the book of John. Um, and so this morning we're going to continue in John chapter 1. Um, and our passage is going to be verse 3 and then verses 14 through 18. So a little bit of instruction. I'm going to read verse 3 up here. And then I'm going to ask you guys to join me once we get down to verses 14 through 18. So John 1 verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Now please join me in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Stephen. You can be seated. Thank you so much. Now, we are back in the book of John, and we're going to be, for, be here for a little while. I have been talking to you about the fact that Jesus is eternally God, equally God, and essentially God, and that subject's not going to go away anytime soon because that is the book of John. It's what it's about. Now, last time we talked about how his names declare him and profess him that he is divine or that is he is God come in the flesh. This week, we're going to talk about the works and how they declare him. Now, the first part of your scripture sheet there, I'm going to give you to fill out rather quickly, and I'm just going to go right into it. He created the world. These are the works. What are the works that Jesus did re registered in John chapter 1 that declare his identity that he is God come in the flesh? Well, uh, let's look at it together. He created the world. That's verses chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. Uh, he read it a few moments ago in verse number 3. That's 
why I had him include that in the reading. Jesus is the maker of everything. That would make him the owner of everything. He made it out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. And so if he is the maker, he is the owner. And if he's the owner, then we might say he is the Lord of all. Now, I said this in different words a couple of weeks ago, and some of you got it, some of you didn't. I want you to listen very carefully. We hear a lot of people today talking about their rights. They talk about reproductive rights and personal rights and property rights and parental rights. And then, of course, this being Memorial Day and patriotic and so on, there are those words from Thomas Jefferson about these unalienable rights. They were profoundly stated in the second paragraph of Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution. It reads like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, it all sounds so wonderful and spiritual. Many people think that's in the Bible somewhere. It's not in the Bible anywhere. In fact, uh, I would have a dispute with that part that said that we have unalienable rights. Folks, we do not have unalienable rights. We have incredible rights privileges that are afforded us by our Creator. How many of you are glad that God does give us all kind of privileges uh, in this world? He has given us tremendous privilege, but we don't have unalienable rights. We have the privilege of existence, life, breath, health, food, water, shelter, living for a purpose and freedom. But the truth is, is God owns everything and He can do anything He wants with what He owns. Amen? God owns it. He owns everything. He's the creator of everything. He created you and me. He owns everything. Now, that ought not shock us that he would ask us to give back to him some of what he has given us for the propagation of the gospel, 10%. Give it back to him. Why would it shock us? He owns everything. And folks, we need to get it in our mind that we're not owners of all that we have. We are stewards of everything God has put under our care. We're stewards, not owners. Let me say that again. We are stewards, not owners. Say that with me. We are stewards, not owners. That probably ruffles some feathers. Well, I'm just going to share with you the scriptures this morning. It's so important that we understand that God owns everything. He has ultimate rights. He has the power to enforce his will. He is the creator and he is worthy And I'm just glad that God is good. We're going to talk about the attributes of God this summer on Wednesday night in in several classes. And so the attributes, one of his greatest attributes is he is good. Wouldn't it be awful if he was capricious? Wouldn't it be terrible if God was unpredictable and he changed from day to day? And one day he's nice, one day he's not. No, God is good and he never changes. There's some other things. Let me quickly give you letter B. He gives us salvation. We talked about it last week. As many as receive him, Jesus, to them gave he the right to become the children of God. Letter C, he reveals God to us. That's the focus of my sermon. I'm not going to expand on that. Letter D, he baptizes us with the Spirit. John said it this way, John 1.33. John said, I immersed in water or with water, but there's one coming after me who's going to immerse with or in the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 12, 12 to 13, talk about that. He does something else Jesus does. He examines the hearts of men. He knows us. He examines us. This is his work. He knows about us. He knew that Peter's name needed to be changed uh, to a rock because of his unstable nature. He knew Nathaniel's devotion and the location of his devotion. 
He saw Nathaniel under the fig tree having his devotions. He knew what it was about, and it shocked him to know how well he knew him. Well, it ought not shock any of us that God knows us to the most profoundest part of our being. He knows us. He examines the heart. Something else, letter F, he forgives sin. Boy, I can't wait till I get to verse 129 to preach that he paid the debt. He removes the sin and the accompanying guilt, and he forgives us. Boy, that is awesome. He doesn't just remove the sin and cancel out the debt of our sin. He removes the guilt. How many of you have a hard time with that? Sometimes you still feel guilty about things that you've confessed to God. Raise your hand. Sometimes you still do. Well, I want to tell you that's not the Holy Spirit telling you and reminding you about that guilt. That's somebody else to defeat your Christian walk. If you've confessed honestly and repented, then take God at his word. He has forgiven you and walk in freedom. He forgives sin. He does something else. He opens the way to heaven, and he is the way to heaven. John chapter 1, 50 and 51, we have a picture here of Jesus saying, if you think I've done great things because I told you I saw you under the fig tree, just wait. You're going to see the heavens open, and you're going to see angels descending and ascending and ascending and descending on the Son of Man, on me. You're going to see it. You know why? Because Jesus is the way to heaven. He is the only way to heaven. Jacob had a vision like that way back in the Old Testament in Genesis 28, 12. He had a dream, and that's what he saw. He saw the heavens open and a ladder. Well, folks, Jesus is the ladder. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. That's how we go back and forth to God. Now, those are some of the works that show that Jesus is divine. Now, I want to dig in a little bit. We're going to look primarily and key in on this phrase, primarily at verse number 14 today. Verse number 14. All of the passage, 14 to 18, but verse 14 is monumental in the Scriptures. So I want to ask this question, and I've got a series of questions that I'm going to ask. And the first one is, what did Jesus do? At verse number 14, I need to read it once again. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So what did Jesus do? Well, first, He arrived in humanity. He arrived in humanity, and we call that the incarnation. That's just a word means he put flesh on. He, he, he became flesh. The phrase that is in focus here is, and the Word became flesh. We already established that the Word is Jesus. So, Jesus became flesh. You might want to write this in your little John book that you're keeping notes on. It's surprising that what took Luke 2,500 words to communicate, John says in five words. 2,500 words in the book of Luke because he was given more details that were necessary about the birth of Jesus and the virginity of Mary. But here, John just took five words, and the Word became flesh. What an amazing, amazing statement. That word flesh there comes from a word, Greek word, sarx, S-A-R-X, and it means this. It means the Word became flesh, bones, cartilage, blood, all the systems and sinews that make up the human anatomy or that make up physical humanity. He became flesh. Now, you're going to hear me emphasize the word became and the word or made, maybe in your version. You're going to hear me emphasize that over and over because it is significant. It's important. There are some thoughts that need to be clarified about that statement. The word became flesh. Here's what it's not saying. He did not assume a body. 
In the New Testament, there were occasions where demons assumed or inhabited the body of human beings. But in this case, that's not what we're talking about. Jesus didn't just assume a body, take a body, inhabit a body. No, he became flesh, the dualist or the Gnostics promoted the idea that Jesus was only spirit, that he never had a body and that he just moved in and out of a body. And so when he was crucified, that one that was crucified was not actually Jesus. And they deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. Well, he did not just assume a body. The second thought is very important. He did not take up or clothe himself in human flesh in the sense of putting on a coat He couldn't move in and out of his fleshly existence. He couldn't take it on, put it on, take it off, put it on. He couldn't do that. We're not talking about, write these words down in your little freshly given and paid for little book that I gave you. Write these words down. We're not talking about a theophany or a Christophany. Theophany, what in the world? Well, T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-Y, theophany would be an Old Testament appearance or representation of God. There were many of those. It's not a Christophany, which would be an Old Testament appearance or representation of Jesus, sometimes called the angel of the Lord. There were many of those. That's not what we're talking about. He didn't just clothe himself or put on some representation. No, I'm emphasizing again, he became flesh. He was not a new person. He was not a new personality. He was the eternal second person of the Godhead. He was the son, but he went through a change. He went from only spirit existence into being a human, into human existence. He was fully God and he was fully man. You say, well, why in the world? I don't get it. Well, take this note. He had to be like us. Jesus had to be like us in the flesh. He had to be like us so that we would know that he knows what it is to be human. Now, he already knew because he created us. But in order to give us confidence that he knows, he took on flesh. Hebrews 4.15 says it this way. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all point tempted as we are yet without sin. Why? Because chapter 2 in verse 14 says, he had to be made like us in order to be able to die our death for us. We needed to know that he understood us as humans. And second of all, he had to have a physical body in order to be able to die. There was not going to be a physical death on a cross if he was a spirit. No, he needed a body. Hebrews 2 says this, he himself... Likewise, speaking of just like men, he himself likewise shared in the same flesh that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that's the devil, and release those who through fear of death, that's us, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hebrews 2.9 says it another way. You can look that up at another time. But he had to be like us in order to be able to die our death for us. In order to be able to die in our place, he had to be like us. In humanity, here's a simple statement. Jesus is God with skin. He's God in skin. He's God in the flesh. That's who Jesus is. Now, this isn't Christmas, but here's a couple of things I found that might bless your heart and give you a little bit of an idea. A man named Edward Caswall wrote this. Lo, or look, lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. 
in it, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. Here's another one by George MacDonald. They were all looking for a king to slay their foes and lift them high. But thou camest a little baby thing that made a woman cry. A real, in flesh, baby came to Bethlehem and he grew and progressed in strength and favor with God and with man. He grew. Then the second thing I want you to see there under this first point is, is he remains with humanity. First, he was... He arrived to humanity, that's incarnation. Now he remains with humanity, and that's habitation. He lives here. The words in the phrase in the verse are, and he was, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt comes from a word which means to live in a tent or a tabernacle or to tabernacle. It puts you in mind of that Old Testament tabernacle. We've studied that, where God was pleased to dwell among the people of Israel, his Shekinah, and that was the Old Testament word, this Shekinah or this representation of his glory rested among them and in their presence day and night right over the Holy of Holies. In the daytime, it was a pillar of cloud. At nighttime, it was a pillar of fire. I want you to get this verse in your mind, Matthew one twenty three. Sometimes we read these verses at Christmas and we go through these and we don't really pay attention to the words and what it's actually saying. So listen to this, Matthew one twenty three. this is Gabriel and he's speaking to Joseph. Listen, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated and you know what it's translated, God with child us. What is that saying? It's saying that the virgin was going to conceive and he was going to, she was going to bring forth a son and who would it be? It would be Emmanuel. It would be God with skin on. God with us. Now, folks, we all can relate to the human sufferings of Jesus in the garden at the flocking post and on the cross. We can identify with that. We understand the searing physical pain of nails being driven through hands. We understand it. What we can't know and we can't relate to is the divine suffering of both the Father and the Son on the cross. I preached this on Easter. On the cross when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, it had never happened before in all of eternity. Verse 1 says, Jesus was with God. He was, and from a phrase literally meaning, he was face to face. And later in verse 18, it's going to say, he's in the bosom of the Father. In the place of greatest intimacy, the closest you can get, the, 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 the most endearing spot would be in his arms leaning against his breast. He's in the bosom of the Father. But for our sins, he was forsaken. So we have this physical pain, we have the separation from the Father, but you know, the greatest of sacrifices is almost undetected. Let's look at the verse. It says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's almost undetected. The Word became flesh. We don't look at this. We don't look at being a human as some sort of sacrifice. <laughs> Nobody got up this morning and said, well, here I am. I'm looking in the mirror again. I'm still a human. I wish I could be something else. No, we don't do that. Because, I mean, we're humans, we don't know anything else. And we've always been human. We are, I mean, we got warts and we got problems, we got aches and pains, but we're human. And we don't wish we could be anything else. But watch this now. We don't look at human as being a sacrifice. But what if you were in spirit, 
you were in communion with the Father, that you were also omnipresent everywhere at the same time. You are unlimited in location. You were superintending creation from all points of reference. Then at a point in time, you put on flesh, became localized in one spot, and then you took on all the attributes of man with all of his dependencies. And what do you mean by that? Well, we're dependent creatures. We have hunger, we have thirst, we have need for warmth and shelter, and on and on and on it goes. We are dependent. Jesus became flesh, and he began to experience dependencies. He even said it, I thirst. He went to the well, and he was waiting on lunch. He was hungry, you see, in John chapter 4. Dependencies. He was tired. He slept in the boat. Dependencies. What if you did it then like Jesus did forever? Let me illustrate this. We were blessed to collaborate with uh, missionary Tommy Tillman in his endeavors to Mongolia. Uh, He is with the Lord now, been gone a few years, but Tommy was a missionary to the lepers around the world. That was his first ministry, and he did it for many, many years, even decades. I was in uh, Franklin, Tennessee one time and listening to him speak. He told the story of a man that he had led to Christ in Cambodia who became a missionary and he felt the call to the lepers. Understanding this is an incurable disease that eats away your flesh. It attacks the nervous system, which in turn makes your flesh uh, become vulnerable. He loved them. This mission, this man that he led to Christ loved them and he served them. He shared Christ with them and nursed them when they were dying of this terrible disease. One day, Tommy was actually present in the service when this man stood up and began to speak to the church. He had chosen for the passage that he was speaking about, the passage in Luke about the 10 lepers. And he slowly began the sermon and he started by saying, we that are lepers would be overjoyed to be healed by Jesus. And he stopped. And one by one, the people that were listening to him who were all lepers began to understand that now this missionary man who had come from Bangkok, Thailand to work in Cambodia was now a leper himself. He had revealed that his, the man and his wife became lepers because of living among them. But they never left. They kept on pastoring the lepers in Cambodia until they succumbed to the disease themselves and passed away. He said, that is a very moving story. It's not even, not even a scintilla of what Jesus, our Lord and Savior, has done when he left being just spirit existence and put on human flesh and became a man. He became flesh, and he is still flesh. A theologian named Bruce Milne wrote this, and I just had to include it as in my studies. I saw it, and I said, I've got the, the people need to hear this. The act of self-humbling on the part of God is irreversible. He is eternally Emmanuel, God with us. God the Son, without ceasing for a moment to be divine. He has united himself to a full human nature and become an authentic human person, in essence, God with us. In Jesus Christ, God was made man. I'll add my part. Today, he is still in his body as he sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting until he will come for his own. All I can say is, what a sacrifice. 
sacrifice beyond compare. Jesus became flesh. When we read the Bible, it pays us, it pays us to take a moment and reflect and think. Because you can read it, well, for the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. We could just read right on. Oh, no, no. He became and He remains. That's the second thing that I want to share with you now. He revealed and He remains uh, in this human flesh. Now then, He does something else. He revealed His deity. This is illumination. We beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I pointed out last week, it is literally God, the only begotten. Now, John is an apostle, and he was a witness, and he said this, we beheld His glory. They saw glimpses of His glory through His miracles. They saw His glory and power. They saw great flashes of His glory at the transfiguration. Uh, Peter was part of that, Second Peter 1.16. He said, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We saw the blinding light. We heard the voice from heaven. We were there. John and Peter and others, they were witnesses. John was filled with wonder. He saw the only man who ever lived in balance. Let me say that again. He saw the only man who ever lived in balance. Look at the verse, John 14, it says, He is the only begotten of the Father, and these words at the end are amazing, full, not partially full, not three-quarters full, but full of grace and truth. He's the only human being that ever didn't get out of balance. He was full of grace, and he was full of truth. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get way off on the truthful side and don't show much grace. Or maybe I get a little mush-headed and I get way over on the grace side and I let the truth slide. But Jesus never did it. It was always in balance. He was always full of grace. He was always full of truth. He was always telling the truth, but he was always gracious about it. Boy, I wish I could do that. I wish I could live in balance. Be full of grace and truth. Be full of truth and grace. Want to tell the truth and want to be gracious in telling the truth. Well, Jesus, the God man was always full of and in balance of grace and truth. I don't know if you just want to let people know what you think from time to time. Is it gracious? How many of you look at people and you say, well, the poor souls, they don't know what they're doing. I guess we'll just let it go. Well, that's not telling the truth, grace and truth. Wow, Jesus was full of grace and truth. Uh, it's amazing. Grace, God as love revealed as the gift of life. Truth, God as light revealed by him who is light. You better write this down. Here's another phrase. The brighter the light, the clearer the truth. The brighter the light, the clearer the truth. Did you ever get ready for get up in the morning and some of the bulbs burned out in your bathroom or maybe one, the one next to the bathroom's working, but the one in your bathroom's not working. You're trying to put your makeup on, ladies or guys, you're trying to check everything out and off you go, and you get where you're going, you get to the office, you go in there to wash your hands, and it's a lot brighter in that bathroom, and there's mustard right here, or maybe the lipstick's all the way down here or something. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying light, but the brighter the light, the clearer the truth. I'm going to come to this verse, the most astounding verse of all the book of John to me, the most, the most heart-shaking, earth-shaking verse is men love darkness rather than light. The brighter the light. The clearer the truth, oh, to stand in Jesus' presence is always to be able to, is always to take a good look at yourself. All is made clear, nothing can hide in Jesus. We find that perfect balance of justice and mercy. 
Now, quickly, number two, what did Jesus' witnesses say? What did they say? Verse number 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. John the Beloved, he was the last apostle. He said, We saw him, we were witnesses, and now we've covered that. Then there's John the Baptist, he was the last Old Testament prophet. So we got the last New Testament apostle and the last Old Testament prophet. And here's what that prophet said. He says he's preeminent. <laughs> he who comes after me is preferred before me. He means this. He means he is first in everything. He is far superior. He is surpassing all others. He is incomparable. There's no comparison to Jesus. He is preeminent. John was stepping back and saying that he must increase and I must decrease. He's preeminent. I found this verse and I thought it was so applicable here. It says in Psalm 115 verse 1, here's the way we ought to worship, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Don't you just wish everything about our lives was pointing to his glory and not trying to garner attention for ourselves? Don't you think the ministry of this church ought to be like that? It ought to be about making his name great, never doing anything to bring shame to his name. Don't you think our church ought to always be about lifting up the name of Jesus, not our programs and our properties and our preachers? No, 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 no. Jesus is the thing that makes Grace Church a place people ought to come to. Oh, it is so important. Jesus, he's preeminent. And then he said something else. This was his message. He was preexistent. He was before me, it says in there in verse number 15. What we saw in verse 1 is declared again. He was in the beginning with God. He says it again here. He says, he was before me. Now, literally, John was six months older than Jesus in earthly time. He was born six months before Jesus was. That didn't make any difference because Jesus was from eternity. He's always been. Number three, what did his coming mean? You say, Pastor, this is interesting information. You really hounded us on verse 14 and kind of really pulled that apart. And boy, it's amazing. He became flesh. What does that mean? What do I do with this knowledge? How is it supposed to help me? What am I supposed to do? We'll start with this. Jesus included us who believe. He included us who believe. Look at verse number 16. And of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. We have received. That word reminds us back of verse number 12. In verse 12, we received something from God who was based on someone that we received. As many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave power to become the sons of God. And so it's so important that we understand it. He gave them right to become the children of God, those who believe in his name. We are included in God's family. We are included in God's family. Now, let me just stop here for a minute and say, make this clear. Christianity is comparable to being a member of a family. It is not comparable to receiving a product like a ticket to heaven or a fire insurance policy or a get-out-of-jail-free card. That is not Christianity. I am afraid that the way Christianity has been being presented for so long is it's all about the moment we say, Jesus, save me from my sins so I don't have to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. Well, praise God. I do too. But Christianity is not just about a momentary transaction. It's about becoming part of the family of God. We're in a relationship with God. We're in a family, and it's got far more benefits than just getting a ticket to heaven. 
Now listen to me. On Monday, my family and I are going to get together and we're going to go out and have hot dogs and hamburgers at one of these parks. I might invite you. It's say, hey, you want to come be a part of my family for a day? Come, we're going to go to the park and we're going to do this and play that. And we're going to have a good time, eat hot dogs and hamburgers and eat too much and have to go get the Alka-Seltzer when we're done. I'm telling you, we're going to have a good time. Would you like to come and join? Yeah, you come, we play, we do this, we do that. And we have a good time. At the end of the day, you're going to go where? Home. Where am I going to go with my family? My family, my children are going to get far more benefits because they're part of my family, not just a one moment event one day in time. To be a part of the family of God is far more reaching than just a free ticket to heaven. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? To be a part of the family means that we're part of his eternal relation forever. Let me say it this way. We are the heirs of God and we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Everything that's coming to Jesus is coming to us because I'm part of the family. I'm a child. Do you understand? It is so important. So what does that mean for my life? Well, it means this. It means that the earthly representation of the heavenly family is called a local New Testament church. This is the visible evidence that there is even such a thing as an eternal family of God. And so when we're part of a local New Testament church and we become members of it, then we have responsibilities and we interact and we care for one another and we love one another. It's not just come see the show on Sunday. It's not just come hear the music and get a motivational speech to help you get through the week. That's not what church membership and church participation is. Being a part of the family means you're checking up on and trying to find out about other people and you care when others are hurting and others care when you are hurting and you participate and you integrate and you become part of it and you share with one another and you love. That's what the family of God is about. And the eternal family of God, this is just a minuscule picture of what the eternal family of God is like. Because it's going to take eternity for him just to roll back all the, all the facets of his grace and his goodness to us. We're included in God's family as one of his children. There's many benefits to being in the family of God. There's provision and protection in God's presence. <laughs> we hadn't just punched a ticket to heaven. We've received Jesus and begun a relationship that lasts forever. He included us who believe. He imputed his fullness to us who believe abundantly. And of his fullness we have received in grace for grace. What a curious phrase, grace for grace. This is not to be missed. In verse 14, John declared that Jesus was full of grace and truth. He was full of loving kindness and full of righteousness. He was full of justice and full of mercy. Well, what Jesus is full of has been awarded to us in increasing measure. When we receive Jesus, we receive who he is, what he is, and all he has. He is full of truth and full of grace. So when we receive him, we receive the fullness of God, grace for grace. Verse 17 clarifies the whole thing. It talks about the law of Moses. And he says, in the law of Moses, there was law and grace. Exodus 34, 6 says it this way. The Lord, this is when he passed before Moses. Moses said, please, let me get, let me get a look at you. And so he passed before Moses, and as he was passing by, God said, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, listen to these words, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Grace and truth. The law, and I want you to see what it says here in verse number 17, for the law was, you want to circle this in your Bible? The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth, grace and truth came 
through Jesus Christ. God gave Moses the law and said, here, organize your people according to these rules. But then grace and truth in full balance showed up in a person. It came. Given in Moses, came in the person of Jesus Christ. God has, John has called Jesus the word, the light, and he's used pronouns he and him repeatedly in the passage. Finally, he names the principle of the narrative, Jesus Christ, Savior and Messiah. He is the one who came and with him grace and truth. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten son who was in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. And so Jesus Christ is mentioned in verse 17 by name for the full time. And all of the fullness of God, his goodness, his grace and truth have all been lavished on Jesus. And then it says, for those of us that received him, he has given us grace on grace, abounding grace, grace on top of grace, grace in addition to grace, multiplied grace, First Peter chapter 1 talks about. I want you to see this little video. Drop the lights and show this little video and pay attention. Listen. I bet you can't identify that. That is Iguazu Falls in Argentina. Iguazu Falls. I lived in Peru and I heard people tell about this. Hey, you haven't seen anything. I've been to Niagara Falls. You need to see Iguazu Falls. Those waterfalls have more water running across them than the Victoria Falls and Niagara Falls combined. Many levels. It's over 2.5 miles length of waterfalls. Imagine all that water. You say, why are you showing us that? Because I just want you to know today that when he talks about grace on grace and the abounding grace that he gives us, we're not talking about the water that runs through Walnut Creek or Four Mile Creek. We're talking about Niagara Falls, Victoria Falls, and Iguazu Falls all in one. What I'm trying to say to you is there's just no limit to what God's will and goodness and love is for us. There is this, there's this cascade of grace. Ephesians chapter 2 says it's going to take eternity to unfold it like an onion and just keep looking at it. We have the exceeding riches of his grace. We have a rich inheritance. We experience rich mercy. We have unfathomable riches of Christ. We are strengthened by the riches of his glory. I got to read this. I, I can't pass this. Paul said it this way, for God has committed them all into disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Oh, he said, this is the, the crescendo of the whole book of Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Oh, only God has a limitless flow of grace for you. I'm just glad to be saved today, aren't you? I'm feeling pretty good about our economy right now. You say, what? Because my economy... And my future is not based on what's happening in this economy. It's based on what's happening in that economy. Amen. I'm rich. Jesus embodied the fullness of the Godhead. No one has seen God, it says. I know there are many manifestations and representations of God in the Old Testament, but he even said to Moses, Moses, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, hold my hand over your face, and you're just going to see my hinder parts. You're going to just see the representation of where I was. You're not going to be able to look at me because no one can look at me and live. Folks, I just want to tell you this. Verse number 18 says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, that is the place of closest intimacy with the father, he has declared him. I'm here to tell you there's no way to see God except one through Jesus. There's no way to go to God except one in Jesus. There's no one who can reveal God to us except one, Jesus. He is Jesus.
He is Jesus. That's the present tense use of the word. He is in the bosom of the Father. Now, he paid our sin debt. He conquered death. He's interceding for us at the Father's right hand. He is there now. He will be there until he comes. Are you his child? Then you're on his mind. Have you trusted him as your Savior? Then your defender is the Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father who hugs up to his breast and says to him, Father, I died by those sins. He is. Jesus has declared, explained, and exegeted, made us understand the Father. So what can I say to you this morning? What do you want to know about God? What, you can't, what can be known and can be understood is what you can see in Jesus. You might say, well, what is the Father like? Well, he's like Jesus. Well, what does the Father like? He likes what Jesus likes. Well, can I approach the Father? Yes, by coming in the person of Jesus Christ. I don't know, somebody might say, if I can believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh, I don't know if I can grab that. Then I can say to you, upon the authority of Scripture, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved if you do not believe that Jesus is God with skin on. First John chapter 4, verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. Second John 7, same author now, by the way. Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Denial of Jesus being God come in the flesh is to be participant with the antichrist. God includes believers in his family. How many of you are in the family of God today because of your faith in Jesus? Say amen. amen. Christianity is about being related to God, not merely getting a ticket to heaven. Christianity is about being in the family of God, not just missing hell. You say, well, I want to miss hell. Well, me too. That's just part of it. That's, that's... Are you in the family of God? Have you trusted Jesus? Have you gone back to verse 12? As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. Have you believed? Have you said yes to Jesus? We used to sing an old song. It says, don't go away without Jesus. Don't go away without him. I'm going to hang out right down front here, and I'd like to talk to you about receiving Jesus, believing in him as your personal Savior. Stephen's going to come and he's going to dismiss us right now. Father, add your blessing to the preaching and teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.